0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Good morning. I'm your host, Robrikus Toles. I am a PhD student at the University of Mississippi in the Department of History. And brief introduction, uh, Dr. Paul Landau is a senior scholar Uh, At the University of Maryland, he's written several books. One well-known book, I think the first one was The Realm of the Word that was published in 1995 and uh, a more recent book published by Cambridge University Press in 2010 called Popular Politics in Southern Africa from 1400 to 1948. Both books were finalists for the African Studies Association Book Prize, which was formerly the Herskovitz Award. But for this podcast, we'll be discussing his most recent work titled Spear, Mandela and the Revolutionaries, published by The Ohio University Press in their new African History Series. And Dr. Landau is a professor of history at the University of Maryland, College Park, and a fellow of the History Center of the University of Johannesburg. And we'll just get right to the interview.
0: Great. Nice to be here, Robricus.
1: Yes. I wonder if you'd like to begin an interview by saying a few words about yourself. Um, when were you born, where you went to school, how you became interested in South Africa and whether you had a mentor or a teacher, um, especially at the university of
0: West Cuss in Madison where you did your PhD. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. And I'm honored to talk with you Robricus and, um, I just want to say that uh, uh, the book is a a third book, and so I I entered this field really wanting to write about history and colonialism, and I was interested in history from the time I was in high school. Um, I grew up in New York City on the Upper West Side. I was born in 1962, and so I lived through the late 60s and 1970s in in New York. And you can't grow up in New York without confronting the legacy of racism and racial hatred and oppression in this country. The Upper West Side at the time was a neighborhood where those tensions sometimes came out. There were gangs, there was fear on the street. If you were walking home from school no matter who you were and yet there was also you know a pride in being from new york and so on and i took a lot of that experience and i wondered what kind of world do we live in and it stayed with me i went back and forth about it and i ended up deciding i wanted to understand the big picture and I was interested in South Africa and the fight in South Africa for social justice and against racism. And in in, in when I went to college, I had a professor who was a South African, uh, Jeffrey Butler, long, long gone now, lost an arm in World War Two, and he introduced me to South African history. And I think it was a way for me, Rubricus, to understand. In, a, in the beginning, myself, my own upbringing, and the world that I found myself in, you know, all the good, bad, and ugly. But I ended up being told that you have to go in. In the University of Wisconsin, I, I, I went to graduate school there. My my mentor there was a, a an Africanist, not a South Africanist, a real distinction, uh, Jan Vencina, one of the pioneers of African history. Uh, and Stephen Fireman, another pioneer, were both advisors to me as a graduate student. And their attitude was, you go, you learn an African language, you live in an African country, you talk to the people, you collect oral tradition. It was a completely different world. And um, that's the world I entered. And uh, I... uh, I uh you know i I went to graduate school my I, 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 my perspective, Rubricus, was is in a way, when I went to graduate school, I was with African students who were graduate students who Vencina had brought in and, and firemen and others were teaching with me. And so my attitude was was that was the sort of solidarity that I sort of internalized in how I was going to proceed as a scholar um how, how how I was going to uh, operate was was to think about changing the world so the natural thing could be true which was that african people would run their own affairs without being bothered by the west uh could own their land again and so it was a simple kind of understanding uh, undergirding what I did thenceforth, and so I, I went, I went, I don't want to go on there in an autobiographical mode, and I'm not saying I always did a good job, but that sort of motivated me as a South Africanist. So, to to end this little story, so, I mean, I guess unusually, a lot of South Africanists approach things from the point of view of, of archives and newspapers. I approach things by um, learning Zulu with Dan Kuneni, learning learning Setswana with uh, 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 Kuneni and, and uh, Tembam Godla and others, and approaching South African history by looking at African people, their experiences, their understanding of the world, and having that be front and center in my work and not some sort of uh, overall framework that was imposed necessarily. So I'll stop there. Sounds good, Dr. Uh Landau. Um, you can call me Paul now if I'm gonna call you Rubricus, please. All right. All right, Paul.
1: That that was a great um uh autobiographical uh um piece. Uh thanks for thanks for letting us know what uh motivated you to study Southern Africa. Um second we'll begin to talk about the book itself. Tell us how you came to write Spear.
0: Okay. Well, thank you for that question. I had always wanted to write a book where individuals were important. And so you were looking at a sort of close up at what individual people were doing in a, in a, in a crisis. I think that was in the back of my mind because I knew that history wasn't just the long view that we had to kind of immerse ourselves in the experience of the past directly. I did it a little bit with my previous books was noted. They have anecdotes and individuals who are trying against the odds to succeed in, in South Africa and Southern Africa, but The other thing is I never really fully understood what happened in the middle of the 20th century in South Africa. That is to say, I always felt puzzled about what the plan was when Mandela went to jail, as uh, we all know he did, beginning his 27-year jail sentence from 1962 to February, 1990, when he was released. And, and so, I mean, it's hard. One, I understand, one can understand the, what, what happened is a protest against apartheid, the government then suppressed. So apartheid being the racist system of really running South African society for white people. And unlike... In the United States, we have our own history here, obviously, lynchings, racism, and oppression. But unlike the United States, after World War II in South Africa, this was codified, literally. So you have notices officially in you know, from the government that only white people, and spelled out, live in this area. All black people have to leave this area. Only, only white people are, you know, this kind of thing organized South African society. And was it a protest that Mandela was involved in? Was it telling the government, don't do this, or uh, going on strikes or what? Uh, and so what I found was, was that, of course, he, he, he was a, a revolutionary, um. In, in the end, uh, I, I, I realized that he didn't just want to protest and convince, he wanted to try to start an insurrection that would gain mass support to challenge the apartheid government. That was my, my realization as I started this project back about uh, 13 years ago. So I'll will I'll stop there. Let you let you do, uh, chime in. I mean, would so and 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 if I could say, does that come through in the book, Rubricus? It does. It does.
1: Um, that leads me to ask you, kind of, you know, how and why did you use the nineteen sixty, uh, what you term the crisis as? I guess the pivotal point in South African history um, that galvanized uh, revolutionaries like Nelson Mandela. What was so uh, um, specific about 1960 and what happened?
0: Well, and so I think I think the issue is the 1960 uh, Sharpeville shooting. Is that would it be correct to say that I, that that's that's the the instant of the crisis that you're referring to? Yes, sir. Okay. Well, I, I do I do discuss the 1950s also, and it's important to understand that in the 1950s were the time that Mandela rose in the African National Congress, and that a certain vision of challenging the government also uh, arose among certain people, Mandela and others. But in 1960, the state shot and killed dozens of people. 60, 69 or so people, I think, died in, in Sharpville. And there were others who were killed elsewhere. And this happened because the pan Africanist Congress, not the African National Congress, but a part of the African National Congress that had broken off in the 1950s, the end of the 1950s, and renamed itself uh, Pan-Africanist Congress against the idea that it would have uh, any communists or white people or really non-Africans. It was an African nationalist sort of uh, breakaway. But these are, these are people who were friends with the ANC people. We, we mustn't think they were, they were you know, enemies or didn't know each other, often knew each other and often were quite friendly. And there were talks right away, by the way, to reunify the ANC and PAC. But in 1960, the PAC organized a, a protest where people would bring their passbooks that they were forced to carry to be checked to see whether they, as, as black people, were in the place that the government wanted them to be and so on. And they would take their passbooks and they would, um, uh, it ended up being that they would hand them to, to the police station. That wasn't the original plan, but that's how it took off. And it, it, it was organized nationally, but it didn't happen uh, everywhere because they didn't get the word out. They couldn't print the leaflets and, in Sharpeville, uh, a, a township uh, you know, on the uh, Rand, uh, the people crowded into a police station. The police opened fire and shot uh, uh, hundreds of rounds of ammunition and killed these people. And these these were innocent people who were killed. Most of them were shot in the back. And the fallout for that was was right away... On, on both the side of, of uh, people like Nelson Mandela and, and others in the ANC and the PAC, but also the government. The government declared a state of emergency and banned the African National Congress and did all and other things, making it clear, and this is the end of the answer, there would be no more protests tolerated that would have any meaning. There was no more politics that would be allowed under the apartheid government. And so that's why the uh, uh, people around Mandela and Mandela himself led the way to a new form of opposition. They felt, well, then we have we have got to incorporate violence into what we're doing, and we have to be careful about it. It wasn't wanton violence. And that, that the idea was that that will somehow stimulate, will break through the logjam of popular participation. Let me just back up one second and say... Why logjam of popular participation? It needs to be said, historically, to be frank, that part of the problem was that they could not secure universal participation in a labor withdrawal. They couldn't get the masses of workers, all of them, to all stay home, partly because they couldn't organize freely. They weren't permitted to organize freely. But partly, it must be said, because not all workers were willing to participate in a way that would jeopardize their jobs. So there was a feeling that they had to kick things up in order to eliminate any possibility of of reform or compromise, since the government was essentially already saying there's no possibility of reform or compromise. All Mandela was saying is, well, let's... Acknowledge that. There's no possibility of reform or compromise. So what's our next step? And I credit him for being willing to take that next step. And part of the book is about him convincing his colleagues, some of whom are senior to him in the movement, that they should, in fact, use violence. And and as Walter Susulu pointed out in his own interviews, the real issue was, okay, so we're going to use violence. Well, how is it going to be just, you know, from a central command, or or as planned out? What, you, what do you mean? And the second thing is, how can we get the masses of people to support us, even at the risk of losing their jobs? How can we do that? Will violence help us do that? So that was the question.
1: Sounds good, sounds good. And also, um, unlike, a lot of histories um, that deals with South Africa and even biographies of uh, Nelson Mandela. Um, you you pay close attention to the people around Mandela to to show the different revolutionaries' actions and motives, and in your book you say that you're trying to redress the distortion of South African history that comes from a perspective of world whiteness. So how does, comment on that? (laughs) Yes, sir. How does Spear um, uh, kind of highlight Mandela's genuine leadership Um, around his colleagues and even like you just said with them deciding to use violence to, um, to get their point across
0: in their, uh, struggle for freedom. Thank you, Rubricus. Uh, Mandela, as you know, is world, world figure. And I, I can't remember who said it, um, I can't remember whether it was Cornel West or someone said that Mandela's become a Santa Claus for white people. (laughs) Uh, I thought about that a lot. And also, you know that there's there's this, uh, some students in South Africa have been critical of Mandela for the negotiations in the 1990s. Like he should have demanded more and so on. So there's a lot of stuff going on there. Um, So, uh uh you, you know uh, to ref, uh, refresh me with the question again I got distracted for a moment
1: um in your book you say that you're trying to redress the, okay. the so, the here's, so, here's,
0: so here's the question I, I got it i just i lost my attention for a minute so the, so what what I'm trying to do is say this was first of all a black man I mean, it may seem strange to say, but i think mandela has been sort of co-opted into a sort of peacemaker and it's forgotten that his contacts his fellowship his friends his interaction were with other african people and and you know other people of color and some white people but you know other african people much like the the civil rights struggle in the united states as you know it it is true that connections to white people were important, sometimes individual. There was patronage, there was money. It's not, it's not true that white people had nothing to do with the civil rights struggle in the United States, as you know, right? And this is true in South Africa, that white people played a role in the party, in the Communist Party, and they played a role in Umkonto uh, Sizwe, which is the Spear of the Nation, or MK, the military organization that Mandela founded. But white people also tend to leave more writing behind, more memoirs in South Africa. They had more education, more, more or less than than uh, most of their black comrades did because of apartheid. So the result has been a lot of books about white people in the movement. And I don't think there's anything wrong with looking at Bram Fisher, looking at Joe Slovo, looking at... Uh, even minor uh, characters, new book about the Skrmbruckers. But what's lost is the greater number of black people who were in command positions and played the most vital role in MK in the early 1960s. And so that's why I wanted to recover. I spent most of my time doing this book to recover those experiences, even when they weren't in English, in certain in a few cases, I had assistants translating them. Um, and I can, I can hear Setswana, so I did a little myself. And so that was the thrust of the book. The thrust of the book was to restore the balance and say, this was a, a, an Africanist movement, much more than people remember. It was a movement that was nationalist. It was connected with what was going on in the rest of Africa against colonialism. And it was a revolutionary effort against apartheid. Um, So I'll stop there.
1: Sounds good. Also, Dr. Landau, um, I'm interested in your uh, methodology for writing this book. Um, In your book, you state that you used over 250 interviews and uh, besides um, Nelson Mandela's biographical material that has already been written, um, kind of how did you use the interviews and kind of what were you trying to do? And also, um, what else helped you write the book?
0: Wow. Well, um <laughs> I, my, Mike. I have a, my, uh, my 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 personal technique is sort of eg- exhaustive. I mean, I can't. I feel like there's such a responsibility writing about these people. People are going to take what I have to say seriously. Once I took it on, I felt like I owed a debt to the people living and deceased. And so, take Moses Khatani. Anything Moses Khatani ever said or ever wrote, I wanted to read the biography of Moses Khatani. By Bunting, I read um, any you know snippets because you know that and and other other people take take uh, Elias Motswaledi. I found an interview with him from Peter Delius, another historian, and it really hadn't been fully used. And I listened to it, and and I think there was a transcript, or maybe there wasn't. And uh, then I would look for anything else that Elias Mozoledi was involved in and any mention of him from anybody else. So this became exhaustive. I eventually had something like I, there was something like 250 or 300 um, interviews that I went through, maybe more because I didn't use all of them. And then I also had the memoirs that people wrote published. And in most cases, in some cases unpublished and, I tried to connect individuals to each other to reconstruct events. And the the difficulty in, in doing that was that uh, I couldn't do it on a computer. It just became impossible. So after a while, I got to know about 40 of the principal people enough that I was comfortable with their biographies. And I was able to uh, cut apart their testimony and write transcribe it write it out if it was on a tape or or print out uh, the transcript if it had already been transcribed from the tape so that i had say an interview uh, with somebody i'm talking about and they're talking about their life but they mentioned something that happened in 1961. so around my office I wrote on the walls 1960, 1961, 1962, 1963. And I began cutting apart the little interviews and and pasting the strips of paper where people said something about 1961 in 1961. So in the end, I had cut apart all these tra- transcribed interviews and other sources and had them pasted all around my walls, so that I, I'm. You're not going to believe me. You wouldn't believe a picture of this, but you know, you know how Big Bird's fur looks like the feathers on Big Bird, where he's got <laughs> like yellow feathers. That's the way my entire office looked. It, <laughs> it literally looked like that, it's, and it was strung together with masking tape, or, or rather Scotch tape, and so on. And so then. And I had already tried to write it another way. By the way, I had written a draft and tossed the draft. Um, so then I went through the room and put together the narrative, like f- through that form. I mean, that's I didn't. I I stopped looking at the standard narratives. I stopped looking at the published sources on this period. I threw all that away because it kept. Ending me toward what other people had already said. And so this, this was a sort of difficult thing, but I ended up doing it and it worked well. I, I peeled off all of the, all of the uh, bits of paper, stuck to my bookshelves and so on, and eventually turned it all into this book. Um, the, uh, the apparatus in the end of the book uh, has a list of, of interviews cited by number in the text, but there are also a bunch of other interviews that uh, didn't make it into the number system that are cited in full, and memoirs. So this book is really based on that. Everything else comes now. One, let me just say one other thing about those sources. Every, I was going to say everything comes from that. One of the one of the sources of of the uh, of of the of the interviews is different from the others. And, and that's that uh, one of the sources is forced, is coerced. So uh, I used many sets of, of uh, archives that had interviews, collection of interviews, and I list in the back. But one of them were witness deposition testimony from uh, people who were tortured by the South African police. Um in 1963, 1964. And so the torture that produced that testimony produced witness testimony that I found in the South African archives for the Rivonia trial. I just want to point that out because I think that's a, a decision that some might criticize. You know, you could say, well, don't, don't, don't read that material. Don't, don't cross-reference that material. Don't use it um, because it's, it's taken from people who are being beaten up, but I decided to be clear about what was going on, and how I was using it, and also to stress that you had to be careful using it because it was heroic to lie to the police when you were being tortured, and lies are are uh, planted in that testimony, even by cooperating witnesses. Sometimes they'll lie to save somebody or to preserve a shred of uh, of their own, uh, you know, self esteem. So you, it's very difficult to use those sources. But I found it's difficult to use any source, rubricus because people misremember things, even that they experienced. As Mac Maharaj once said to me, <clears throat> "Eyewitness testimony is the is the least reliable." <laughs> <laughs> it's true. That's true. People remember different things from the same meeting. Um, yeah. but so uh, so I tried to reconstruct it uh, uh, that way.
1: Sounds good. Also, um. One of my favorite um, parts of the book is your discussion of uh, Nelson Mandela's and the other revolutionaries um, transnational ideas and some of the ideologies and ideas that kind of helped them make the decisions that they made and um, but particularly, you talk about it in chapter five, um, Mandela's bookcase, and I just want you to tell us a little bit about that.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that question too, and I this was a this was a a, a paper I gave actually at Ravonia because uh, I was working on that chapter. There was a conference. This is the. The Rivonia is, is where the farmhouse was, where many of Mandela's colleagues were planning and plotting, and Mandela was as well. He was posing as a gardener, um, and then he was, uh, uh, and, the, and then they were all uh, arrested. Was it called Lily's Leaf Farm? It was called Lily's Leaf uh, Farm. That uh, uh, that that is correct. This was this was the uh, the headquarters that. The Communist Party purchased essentially for Mandela and others in MK, and um, it's just as an aside, it's uh, it's on that farm uh, that Mandela likely first shot a gun, uh, not when he was uh, trained uh, militarily uh, by by the Ethiopians, but it's also there that he discussed philosophical and other ideas and so I want to get I want to answer your question these these men and women read books and discussed uh theory and that's the point of the chapter Mandela's bookcase they shared books they commented on them and that th- this is for some reason something that isn't as highlighted uh with uh, uh the South African revolutionaries and especially the uh, African ones. And so I wanted to make that clear and I could do that because Mandela left notes to his reading that were kept in the trial. Uh, the the trials that he was subject to and the tri- and what in some cases that others were subject to the evidence was spread around, but I collected it. So he wrote down his notes and so you could see what he was taking out of the stuff. So my technique was, I would read everything that he mentioned, and then I would read his notes, and I would see what he was highlighting and what he wasn't, and that would give me an insight into the way he was thinking. So that's what I did. And sometimes it wasn't you know, wasn't that easy to, to figure out what his emphasis was, but I could at least see what he was reading and what he thought it was important to write down. And, you know, he was influenced by Che Guevara. He was influenced by what happened in Cuba with Castro. Um, The Chinese were a big influence. And remember it was only like, you know, 12, 13 years before, 12 years before that China had had its revolution. So that, that was significant. Algeria was an important influence in his experience. Um, but not so much in his uh, reading. Um, and interestingly, Israel also was a part of the reading. At the time, in uh, 1960, 61, 62, Israel had not yet exhausted the support of uh, anti-colonial forces in the world by its, uh, by its behavior. So th- there was a... a, a a sense that Israel was an anti-colonial state. It had, it had beaten the British back and there had been a terrorist movement, according to the British calling it such, um, of extremists. And it's this group of extremists, the Irgun that was most, uh, influential to the actual organization of MK for Mandela. MK was supposed to be a civilian outfit where, you know, people would, uh, do uh things in the evening um for the movement and then go back to work and no one would be the wiser and that was uh that was taken from the irgun this this force that you know killed killed prisoners in response to prisoners being killed by and 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 uh left a a radical rightist vein in in israel survives to this day menachem begin being the the leader of uh of the Irgun and the later uh, leader of Israel and the Likud party. So it was interesting to see that that was uh, there for Mandela as well. But I think China, and I think the idea of transforming society down to its roots was ultimately the most important thing that he got out of reading Mao, out of reading Marxist literature, and out of discussing other movements, including the Philippines and elsewhere, and reading about them. Um, I think that he understood that they had to not just switch governments or get rid of the laws that had been passed under apartheid and say, we're done. He understood that South Africa had to transform the way it owned and distributed wealth. Both them from the land, and from mining and from industry, and that that again, Roprecus is repressed uh, publicly. That that's not as popular to uh, discuss about Mandela, in in the West. You know, far better to recall only his jovial, friendly, sort of grandfatherly uh, attributes when he was at the helm in South Africa in the 1990s as present, But the younger Mandela certainly understood that a thoroughgoing transformation of South Africa was necessary in order to put things right.
1: Sounds good. And Dr. Landau, I mean, Paul, during this uh, transformation, what led Mandela and his organization, MK, to sabotage? And can you kind of explain some of the um, acts of sabotage that MK were engaged in? And also, how, how was it um, for MK after the sabotage, the sabotage Act was passed in 1962? And also, how effective were there sabotage attempts and was it victimless
0: thank you rubricus the idea of sabotage was born out of first of all previous experience so there had already been acts of sabotage uh, done to support strikers and in fact, Sisulu himself had been apparently involved in an effort to blow up a railway line uh, earlier on. So there was there were things like that that, that were that people did to, to But ultimately, it was also about not killing people. They didn't they didn't want to target people. Uh, initially, the idea was to. Um, D- d- sort of a th- sh- fire a warning shot, if you will, Rubricus, in a, in a way at first, right? It was, it was to say, okay, so here we are, we're, we're, we're ready, we're active. You know, we're 72% of the population, if you just take uh, people of African or identified as Afri- African descent, and we can do much more, much worse damage. Um, so the first, the first damage is sort of like a warning. We're going to blow the door off a post office. We're going to, um, you know, s- uh, s- destroy a Bantu affairs, uh, office that administered apartheid or a pass office or so on. So the, that's what they did. And also trains, um, uh, derailing trains, you know, going after switch boxes, um, Cutting down uh, telegraph wires, pulling down telegraph wires, but one can say that there could have been much more of that. You know, low, low, low level, low tech kinds of things: pulling down telegraph wires, putting sugar in gas tanks. This was the the aim of some people, but others thought, for some reason, that uh, bombs and chemical bombs were the most effective warning, and so. I go into some detail about how they made the explosives and w- what they attempted to do. It's all freely available information. I'm, you know, one can search on the internet, find anything you want about explosives. But what ended up happening? This is this is really the the the, the issue. Can can you contain violence just to sabotage? Right? Can you just have it be sabotage? No one's really going to get hurt, and so on. And, right, I mean, that's the question. It would be great if if you could totally just make that determination. Uh, But unfortunately, things tend to get away from central authority, even when you're just uh, destroying objects, um, in in part because uh, black people were subject to violence so much from the state and had really violence was common in south Africa under apartheid and sadly to, to this day um and so you know i, 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 am, I am i making sense you you just, are so, yes. so so i mean i think i think that in in a local sense somebody throwing a bomb in to a, a house and, and somebody getting hurt. There's a, a callousness that developed and also a sense that, well, we're being injured by the state's violence. Why should we be so careful? And um, what then happens is you have, if there are previous Local entanglements or, 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 or anger at a local policeman, say, or somebody who's known as an informant, who's a teacher, or this or that, or a government employee, those people get targeted. And that gets mixed in with a local dynamic, which is not about a central strategy anymore. And so that's the problem there. Um, and this also happened with the PAC as well which wasn't as scrupulous, and people identifying as PAC attacked and killed white people directly in uh, this period. This is another thing suppressed by the sort of public memory of this period. Um, in Cape Town, uh, I saw a photo the police took of a white uh, victim of the, of the uh, PAC's military movement, Polco. Um, as a shopkeeper, I'm, I'm, I'm not certainly not saying, "Oh, I support," you know, targeting shopkeepers. But this this is the truth. Is this is the first white casualty of this period? I'd never seen the picture because the picture had never been published. So that's interesting, right there. Um, but in the end, the the PACs uh, POCO and uh, MK. Both were moving toward killing people. It's undeniable that people were killed. It's highly likely that the Eastern Cape uh, command gave the okay for that. there was also there was the appointment of a small group designed to root out informants and in Mandela's own notes, he notes several times the importance of rooting out informants. Well, what does rooting out mean? right? Yeah. It's not like you're yeah. going to put him in jail, so <laughs> that's what that means. So this was not something that people did not understand that 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 was going to happen. So in, in the end, I think that it's violence begins to get a little bit out of control, and 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 maybe this is a separate issue, and you want to talk about it differently, but it's one of the reasons why. The surviving revolutionaries in nineteen sixty-three um, are planning a big military attack. They they are trying to gear up for some sort of external help to bring in arms and 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 parachute in uh, sort of commandos who would take control of local. Uh, a local group of, of guerrillas who would be ready for them. And they would then essentially liberate territory and create instability for the state. This was a massive plan that required thousands of recruits. And it was just getting going in 1963. I can't say it would have succeeded Rubricus. I don't know. It may not have succeeded. Or it may it may have been stopped uh, at at another point uh, as the PAC zone plan was, but it was it was just getting off the ground when the uh, final arrests came and essentially made it impossible. So
1: sounds good. Um, I'll leave the rest up to potential readers. Um, because you do go into detail about Mandela's arrest and kind of what happened to other A- ANC, PAC, and even MK revolutionaries during this period. Um, but I-, I believe that I've taken up enough of your time today. Yeah, but, but um, let
0: me just say, Rubricus, I can't leave any reader not understanding that One of the the reasons I wanted to write this was, was, uh, as I told Raymond Suttner a long time ago and some others, I understood that people suffered also greatly from this period. And it's important to understand that these revolutionaries were exiled, their families were broken up, some were hanged, and the break in the lives of these people, this greatest generation in a way of South Africa's history, really was damaging and so it wasn't only the torture but it was also the the punishment of these people after that and it's it's intergenerational continues on to the next generation and i just wanted to be sensitive to that sorry to interrupt you oh no no problem uh thanks states for uh for adding that uh paul
1: also uh it's kind of traditional to ask uh what
0: are you working on now well, I'll be very brief, because I know your, uh, uh, your 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 readers are probably more interested in this book. But I'm 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 working on looking at the anti-apartheid movement after uh, this period, and to see its mechanics internally, what was going on, what 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 it permitted, what it didn't permit, and f- looking at it uh, philosophically as a, as as uh, uh, Hackam Thurn has said one of the, the first transnational movement really in, in in modern history in the 20th century at least. Um, so I'm interested in that. But I also want to go back uh, uh, eventually and uh, again look at the 19th century in the Highfeld And I may work uh, with a colleague in South Africa in doing that. But um, yeah, so that's that's all I'll say about that because it's in the initial stages. I was in Germany for some months in 2020, 21, during the COVID epidemic. And uh, I was looking at uh, the idea of the sacred and the secular and uh, trying to understand anti-apartheid as incorporating elements of the sacred. So that's, that stands as my future project, Rubrikas.
1: Sounds good. Well, Paul, thanks for uh, giving us a revel- revelatory and definitive account of how Nelson Mandela and his uh, peers, the other revolutionaries, led South Africa to the break of revolution against the post-war twentieth, the post-war twentieth century most infamous, infamously uh, racist regime in South Africa.
0: For day. Well, thank you very much. And I, I, I'm sure I wouldn't have suggested the word de- definitive. There's room for more work there in the future. <laughs> just, uh, thank <laughs> you so good. much for a wonderful interview, Rubricus. I enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you.